Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. The chronological end of the Old Testament history or narrative actually comes kind of bound in the middle of the Old Testament with Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, Malachi's prophecy does happen a couple few years later, but really this gives the sort of historical narrative end in Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, despite its location in the Old Testament. And Ezra and Nehemiah are helpful to read together. They were once uh, really one book and have been separated in church history. And they chronicle the first and second returns of Judah to Judah by uh, the Jewish remnant of the Babylonian captivity. Remember earlier that Judah had been taken into captivity by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and Jerusalem had pretty much been destroyed. And so we are reading today from the Old Testament as Nehemiah 8, but it's helpful to understand its context. First of all, the first half of Ezra details a first return led by a guy named Zerubbabel, who's the first governor of the restored Jerusalem. And the second half of Ezra introduces uh, Ezra, who's a priest and scribe about 50 years later, who leads a religious reform, whereas Zerubbabel was mostly restoring the temple and its construction. Ezra leads a religious reform during the second return, during his second civic restoration, who was that was led by Nehemiah, a second governor who was allowed to return to Jerusalem like Zerubbabel earlier before him. Now there are two noteworthy uh, things, uh, uh, religious purposes of these books. There are plenty of others, but two of note that I wanna point out. Uh, one is that these books highlight God's covenant of faithfulness and grace to the descendants of Abraham. Uh, we're told that God's hand by his providence is at work in the kings of Persia, uh, uh, Cyrus and Artaxerxes, to allow these first and second groups of Judeans to return under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Just as God's hand was at work and his providence in uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, before them, who was used by God to punish the people of Judah and to bring them into captivity because of their, their unfaithfulness. God's hand and providence was at work in these kings of Persia later to allow them to go back because of his covenant of faithfulness to Abraham. Remember God said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And this was a covenant of grace and mercy. The second noteworthy religious uh, purpose that I'd like to bring to your attention from these books is the importance of keeping the absolute purity of God's law, uh, which is reinstated in Nehemiah chapter eight. Someone once gave me a little book that says the exceptions to the 10 commandments, or you could say the exceptions to God's law. And when you open it up, it's full of blank pages. Um, and so that's really what these books highlight is this importance of keeping absolute purity of God's law. But there's another theme that isn't explicitly stated but comes out in these two books that I want to call to your attention. It goes something like this. The more that things change, the more they stay the same. 
the more that things change, the more they stay the same, or sometimes even get worse. Isn't that the, the law of thermodynamics that we're heading increasingly towards chaos and not really headed towards things getting better? Compare the uh, giving of the law reinstated with Ezra in Nehemiah chapter 8. Compare that to the giving of the law, first of all, by Moses. Remember, he came down from Mount Sinai and gave them the law, and they said, yes, all this we will do. And then not much later, they quickly break the law with the crafting of the golden calf. And much later in Israel's history, in 2 Kings chapter 22, we read about a king of Israel named Josiah, who uh, during his reign, the temple had sort of fallen into ill repair, and he sent some guys to go in there to clean it up, and they recover what we're told is the book of Moses, as if they hadn't read Deuteronomy before. It had sort of fallen out of use. And uh, they come back and read him this book of Moses, and he says, Great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. So it wasn't constantly that they were reading and obeying God's law. And here he falls in repentance. And so in Nehemiah chapter 8, our Old Testament reading today, Ezra is kind of like a new Moses, kind of like another Josiah re-giving of the Mosaic law to the Judeans assembled here in the restored Jerusalem. And then the people say, Amen, Amen. And then they grovel on the ground in repentance, basically uh, saying, yes, we will do this, and we repent for not doing it, just as Israel had done over and over again in their history. And after the giving of the law, is uh, reinstated, they sign a promise, a promise, a covenant to keep the law. But you know what? It doesn't work. Ezra's measures have no lasting effect. Nehemiah's book ends uh, like this after he uh, restores with civic and religious uh, reformation, Jerusalem, he goes back to Persia to work for the king of Persia again, and he comes back sometime later, uh, returns to Jerusalem. Uh, when Nehemiah returns, he sees that the people have taken advantage of his absence. They've allowed a Gentile named Tobiah to live in the temple, which is not keeping the absolute purity of God's law, nor his temple. And he is really upset about this. They've neglected giving the priests their offerings due for their livelihood. And they've broken the Sabbath. And the biggest deal in both Ezra and Nehemiah, the one law that uh, both Ezra and Nehemiah are continually upset about is intermarriage. There's this problem of intermarriage of the people of Jerusalem neighbor, uh, marrying their, uh, their pagan neighbors, bringing in other uh, religions, so not keeping the purity. And so after the, all of this, the very last line, after you see Nehemiah's frustration from his return and trying to bring about order again, the very last line of the book is, remember me, oh my God, for good. <laughs> it's almost an exasperating cry of frustration. This ending is depressing. It gives a sort of glimpse of the futile work of this leader. And you can compare that to the ending of Ezra also. At the end of Ezra, he gives this long list of people who had intermarried. And then he says at the very last line of Ezra, all these had married foreign women and some of the women had even born children. 
They're not keeping the law. It doesn't end with a happy ending. Despite their uh, attempts to build a utopia, the people of Judah are still sinners. And so the chronological end of the Old Testament gives a sense of a lot of unfinished business. Do you remember the, the song, Turn, 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 that was made uh, popular by the Birds in 1965? Do you know that that's actually the, the only song that's made number one on the Billboard pop charts that was written by a, a, a biblical personage, uh, King Solomon? Uh, because it's actually a quote of Ecclesiastes chapter three, um, which was uh, made into a folk song in the 1950s by Pete Seeger and popularized by the Birds. And that song, Turn, 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 which basically for the most part quotes Ecclesiastes, it gives a sense of endless uh, futility. Uh, a, a time for this, a time for that, or as Ecclesiastes says, it's all vanity. It pretty much amounts to nothing. But there is one line in that song, one idea that's repeated, the only thing that's repeated twice is the idea of peace. First it says, a time of war, a time of peace. And then the last line of the song is this, a time for peace, I swear, it's not too late. Well, peace, don't you want some peace? I mean, not just world peace, but, but, but peace down in the depths of your heart. And peace, that is what Jesus Christ came to bring, not only to Israel, not only to Judah, but to the entire human race. And as the bird said, it's not too late. With Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that there is a dire necessity for Jesus Christ's intervention. Remember that the, the chronological history of the Old Testament ends with unfinished business, the sense of futility and frustration on behalf of both Ezra and Nehemiah. And so therefore we see the absolute dire necessity for Jesus Christ's intervention in history. He is the true Israel. He is the true Judah. They could not keep the law. They never did over and over again. But he does. And it's for this reason, when Jesus Christ comes to the world, when Gabriel announces to Mary that she will bear the Messiah, the Savior, who will do it for us, she can't help but exclaim, to sing out, to shout with joy, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy his covenant of mercy with Abraham as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She recognizes the need. In today's gospel text, Jesus Christ unrolls the scroll the, from the prophet Isaiah and found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, like uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, although we are in poverty of a constant news cycle that's depressing, Jesus Christ came to give us excellent news, some really good news, the best news. Although we toil, with endless futile striving that makes us prisoners of our own devices, Jesus Christ came to bring liberty to the captives. Although we are blind to our inability to meet God's demands, Jesus Christ came to recover our sight. 
Although we are oppressed by the present unfairness of this mortal life, Jesus Christ came to bring the Lord's favor while we were unfavorable. A time for peace. And it's never too late, even for us. And for that, I say thanks to the Lord for his gracious favor and intervention in Jesus Christ. Amen.